All right, let's uh, make our way back. All right, great. Well, listen, uh, we are very blessed this morning to have Asher Griffin uh, with us. Yes, he is Associate Pastor of Community Life at Henderson Hills Baptist Church, and he is originally from Edmond, um, was from a Bible church environment, saved and baptized when he was a young guy, and just some connections. Jay was his youth pastor, and uh, he still turned out pretty good, so, you know. He's also an OSU grad, so um, you, mixed reception, mixed reception. Yeah, yeah, wearing red socks, that's right. Um, he was called to ministry when he was a senior at OSU and went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Um, during that time, he also uh, pastored a church for a, a small period of time there in Virginia. And um, one of the things that we were talking about is he really feels called to suburban ministries. So Edmund is a good, a good place to be for that. Um, he married uh, Brooke, his wife, last summer, met there at the church, and uh, he's been in pastoral ministry around five years. And then he also told, us that, told me this, and that is that Enid is one of his top five Oklahoma cities. So there you have it. So why don't we give a warm welcome to Asher. much uh, louder audience than the first service. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, like Kevin said, so I, I met Jay when I was a junior in high school, and he was really instrumental in my life. Spiritually, um, I became a believer at a young age and grew up in the church, um, also flourished, I think, or, or grew in my faith a lot through things like FCA and camps. And if you know anything about like FCA or camps is that the speakers there or the group leaders there are always these really awesome people that converted to the Christian faith, like in the middle of a plane crash or something really exciting. Um, and I just went to Good News Club. And so I always kind of felt spiritually, frankly, like a loser. And so um, I didn't feel like my story was cool enough or good enough. Um, Jay took me out to lunch when I was a senior in high school, or junior in high school, and he said, that I think that, I was telling him all this, and, and he said, I think the problem is you think your faith is about you, rather really than what God did in your life, which is amazing, and it's like, well, talk about the ultimate God card, it's just lunch, but, um, <laughs> so from that point, uh, Jay was, has always been really instrumental in my life, and we stay in touch, um, so I was really thankful when he, uh, asked me to help out, um, and guest preach with you guys. Uh, after this sermon, I start vacation, um, so this may be a good 10-minute sermon, um, but uh, my flight doesn't leave until 6.30, so I've got like seven hours to kill, so it also might be really long. If you have your Bibles, could you pull them open and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? Christians have always believed um, that Jesus Christ or at least the coming Messiah in Christ was always the, the pinnacle or the high point of our faith. Uh, it's not new to us that in the beginning we believe and know that Jesus was. He was God and he was with God. He was the beginning of all things and all things were made through him and for him. 
Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe in, in all of its splendor and majesty. And after making purification from sins, he set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It was Jesus, we believe as Christians, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a Virgin Mary. We believe it was Jesus who suffered under the law, was crucified, died and buried, and took on the wrath of God for our sins. On the third day, he rose again, living many days more on this world, and then ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over the entire universe. And finally, there will be a time where he will come and judge everyone based on good and evil. And so we're now stuck in this tension of where Jesus is and where Jesus was. There's this tension in the Christian life that we hope for in Romans 13 where it says, besides this, you know the time, the hour has come where you will wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us, to you and I, than ever before. Yet also in the midst of that tension, Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning. So in light of Jesus ruling and reigning on high, doing everything that was needed and allowed for, for you and I to relish in the fact that he is the redeemer, we still now sit in this kind of constant state of waiting, either to meet him in glory or for him to return. And so the question is, how, how do you now live in light of that? If you're 60 and you're nearing retirement, or if you're retired, what do you do now? You know, they, they say that sure things in life are death and taxes. That's great, but that's kind of sorrowful and kind of depressing at least. If you're a young person, are you, are you like a student in school, are you just kind of in this hovering pattern until you're an adult and then things actually start happening? Or maybe you've got kids in the home and you're waiting for them to leave, but then what? Do you then die? Is that really the next best thing? So what do we do as Christians in the meantime? I think the, the word that Peter wrote to people is the same for them as, the same, as it will be the same for us. And so what we're going to do this morning is just kind of meander and go through this text. And hopefully it will show you as much as it's shown me what we're supposed to do as Christians in the meantime. You know, if life is, is the adventure where heaven and hell hangs in the balance, what do we do in that period? You will look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, read along with me as I read it out loud. I, I think we're going to see how uh, five ways I think we can live in light of the Lord and his time being very near to us. God says in his word, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. I think Peter's words are just as true to us as he was instructing people to live. Now, now I know that you all have been walking through this text, so you know that this, this scripture was written at a time where Christians were very practically and physically enduring suffering. So around 60 or 70 AD, Nero was, or Nero, Nero, I don't know how to say it, Nero was in charge of kind of the empire where people weren't just suspiciously looked at if they were Christians, right? You weren't the weird kid. You were actually being hunted. Uh, you were actually being killed for your faith of, of worshiping this true God in three persons. Uh, Christians were ostracized in many ways. And so in light of that, Peter is not only writing to them to be encouraged in the fact that they are suffering because they're not suffering in vain, but also in the fact that you actually should live a certain way openly, publicly. And so here we have, I think, a couple of things that we can just glean from this passage of how we should live. The first one, I think, is see the end of all things. So verse 7 says to us and to them, the end of all things is at hand. Peter's calling believers to live obediently and expectantly in light of Christ's return. So this, this text, I think, means that the major events of God's great salvation of men and people, God calling out people to himself has culminated or has been ushered into true effect through the death and resurrection of Christ. So, th so there is definitely a point when Christ is returning, but in the meantime, he's not just hiding. All right, the, the end, as they would know it, the end of you know, spiritual suffering or true suffering in vain is over. Now, because of who Jesus was, ushers in this new end where they can relish in the fact that at the end of the day, the king of kings is the one who wins. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, it has already happened. The coming judgment is near, Peter says to these people. So we should keep, as Christians, the ultimate end in mind. Um, so I played uh, some sports in high school. And there are always those teams where you just knew you were going to get destroyed by. Um, you were just going to go into it. You were just going to lose. So we played um, in football. We played Tulsa Union my sophomore year, and we lost by 45 points. Huzzah. So you kind of walk into that week going, I don't even know what we're going to do. But then on the flip side, there are also those teams that you just walk into going, not we are totally going to win, but by how much? You know, can we run rule these guys? And I think that idea of just knowing that you are going to win and endure, you're going to persevere to the end, is the kind of attitude that Christians should have. You know, it, it is really hard if you consume enough news or talk to enough people to not just have a weird fear about the state of the world around us. But at the end of the day, our Lord is actually reigning on high. And I wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian today, whether you normally go to this church and you're not a Christian, or you just kind of rambled into the door like I did today. If you're not a Christian here, the Bible is clear, and all of history is really clear, that there is a Lord who is reigning and ruling over the universe. And he's particularly ruling over your life. One of the main differences between a Christian and non-Christian is a non-Christian thinks that you actually rule over everything in your life. You have this ability to kind of work things out for yourself, to, to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If I just do kind of the right things, it will work out ultimately. And otherwise, it's just bad luck or bad karma. 
that, that's not only anti-scriptural, it just doesn't work. You know, I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, just to read the Proverbs. There's a wise man in the Proverbs, and there's a foolish man. If you read it long enough, you'll start to realize that you look a lot like the foolish man. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll read it long enough and realize you are the foolish man, but there was one who took your place on the cross. You realize that you can't stand before God as the Lord of the universe and say, I've done all these great things. And it's because of that. that. That's why I should be in good communion with you. But in reality, it's because Christ did what I couldn't do for myself, paid the ultimate sacrifice for me. So Christians should live with the end game in mind. We should live and see the end of all things. And that should bring us joy and hope. So I'm not very old, but the older I get, the more hopeful in heaven I become. So right now I'm, I'm basically watching my parents get older, which when you think your dad is Superman and your mom is Wonder Woman, it's honestly hard to see them grow old. And, and you start to see some pains don't really go away. And not just physical, but internal. You know, they're, they're now carrying a burden of, of 60 years and you want heaven for them. Uh, my wife's family, before I met her, um, her mom nearly died from a traumatic brain tumor that for a while they honestly just thought she was going crazy. And she was in her late 40s at that point. And if you're looking at your wife and all of a sudden she's changing and there's literally something inside her that might kill her, you, you long for the time when, when all the tears will be wiped away. You long for heaven more deeply the longer you live, especially if you're a Christian. And we can long for heaven because we know that we'll be there. When the, when the Lord brings the new heavens and new earth like he does in Revelation, we're going to be inside of it. So Christians should have the end game in mind, should see the end as a positive thing. Secondly, living as a Christian on this side of heaven, we should be inwardly focused. So what I'm saying is you should be focused on yourself. It's not what they teach you in third grade, but it is what they teach you in the Bible. You should be very concerned with your personal growth and holiness in the Lord. So look at verse 7 again. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled. Like James 5.8 says, be patient. Establish your heart. Like a tree that is deeply planted in the soil, it, it establishes itself more and more, not, not by doing anything crazy, but by slowly growing over time. Titus 2 says, Likewise, so an older man now talking to a group of men, likewise urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Um, I, uh, I kind of look back in, in a lot of shameful ways, in like high school and college, where I was constantly like fighting to be better than anyone, almost anything, even in the point of like conversation, um, where I was not trying to maintain a control of love between me and another friend. I was constantly trying to push the boundaries. I was constantly trying to reach the border of a friendship or relationship or, or even like a, a career endeavor rather than slowly pacing and prodding myself towards holiness and God's word. I'm learning more and more in just internally of, well, just how life that God is, the life that God has gifted me is, is better entrusted or lived in if I'm following him slowly and surely rather than racing after the rat race of the world. Um, Kevin said earlier, I feel very called to kind of suburban ministry. Um, it's, 
it's very hard for me to try to talk to someone about who Christ is when I and them feel like we have a lot of things going for us normally. Um, so, so Edmund is a place where we, I think, very falsely see that we have it all together. And I'm in that boat too. Like I want a house with green grass and a fence around it and then a white fence in front of the yard just to make sure that you don't belong in my yard, like get off my lawn. Like I want to set up boundaries for myself rather than being self-controlled and pursuing the Lord and patiently longing after him right, rather than trying to make the universe my own. You know, we're called to be sober-minded. First Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be self-controlled or sober-minded here implies that we're not to be swept away by the emotions and the passions of immature men and women. We're instead supposed to be swept away with, with a consistent and joyful communion with God. So when he kind of tails in this verse with, do this for the sake of your own prayers, he's not saying, hey, don't get drunk so when you pray it makes more sense. He's not saying, hey, be self-controlled so you're not like wandering in the middle of your prayers. What he's saying is, if you're plodding along slowly as a Christian, pursuing holiness, your communion is more consistent. Your communion in your prayer with the Lord is more of a pattern than kind of a speed bump in your life. So he says to us to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. The goal is to pursue communion with God more than anything else. A mind fixed on his return is purified day in and day out and enjoys the fullness of fellowship with the Lord. A mind who is not self-controlled, a heart who is not sober-minded, is one that's not pursuing the Lord but pursuing the world. And, and Peter's just saying, avoid that. So he's saying be inwardly focused, but he's also, I think in verse 8, turning now on your outline to, to the third point, he's saying now outwardly focused is also a pursuit of a Christian. Read along with me in verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So as a Christian on this side of heaven, you shouldn't just be concerned for yourself, though that is a good thing. But you should also be concerned for others and live your life outwardly to the attention of other people. The work of the Christian is simply love and the fulfillment of, of the law that the Old Covenant taught to us. Yet love is incredibly hard. And it's hard because we're really sinful people. And other people, if we're honest, are also sinful people. <coughs> so Brooke and I got married last summer. Um, I lived as an adult for like five years before we got married, which means I'm really good at doing the dishes because I had to do them by myself. I know exactly when and how to take out the trash or clean the house or buy things. And so I get really frustrated when Brooke just does the dishes wrong. Like, you, you don't, you don't, like, I've worked up for five years. I have this amazing system. And then she just messes it up. Now, there are things like that within relationships where if I'm constantly not loving her, not sacrificing myself for her, not trying to understand her, and listen to her and give myself over to her, it becomes very easy for me to look at her doing the dishes for us after I ate something that she made and go, you're doing it wrong. Rather instead just being thankful that she might be doing, which she doesn't do the dishes wrong, but because they're clean. But 
if I'm constantly looking at something outside of love, then of course it's not going to cover up a multitude of sins. So, so that's an easy example to give. But there are times in our lives where people actually backstab us. You know, slander is not new to us. People spreading lies about Christ's church or Christ in general is not new. And so we're called by the Lord on this side of heaven to love those people. And that love ultimately covers up the multitude of sins that they have against us. And that seems really hard and impossible. Like you might think of three people that you would like lay your life on the line for, right? Some of your family members, some, not all. And there are like a lot of people that's like, well, I would do a good deed for them, but I, I certainly wouldn't sacrifice myself like the Lord would for his church. But we actually have a real life example where you and I being far away from God in our own sins, you and I being completely rebellious to and against God in our own ways. If there's anything that I can do very naturally, it's look out for myself and sin against the Lord and sin against other people. Yet it was God who drew us near in light of that through the sacrifice of himself, giving love over to us to cover up the multitude of our sins. And so we, in the same way, on this side of heaven, we're supposed to love people eagerly and with great earnest. And part of it is because it actually does remind us and allow us to relish in the truth of the gospel, but also we display something to other people that they can't see in a kind of tit-for-tat world. In a dog-eat-dog world, love doesn't cover a multitude of sins. In in a world where you're supposed to, like, get yours, you're not going to love people earnestly. But on this side of heaven, we're supposed to be outwardly focused. And we're supposed to love others earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is truly kind of the anti-prodigal son, right? We all know the story of the prodigal son. A rich son takes the inheritance of the father, goes out, blows it, ruins it, shames the father, comes back, doesn't even want to be seen, wants to serve on the father's farm, do anything he can to just eat and survive. And the father sees his son and draws him near, runs after him, brings him into the house and throws a huge banquet party for him. And it really makes everyone excited except for one guy in the story. And that's the prodigal son's oldest brother. He could not have been more upset with his dad, with the son who rightfully embarrassed him But he was not earnestly loving him. And his love ultimately wasn't going to cover up a multitude of that person's sins. But here we're called to be doing the opposite. We're supposed to love others in light of their sin, which is the clearest gospel witness that we can give to people. So we should look inwardly. We should look outwardly. And then fourth, I think we should seek to expand the gospel. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. It says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So primarily, we should expand the gospel in light of growing internally and showing love to other people. We should, we should expand the gospel, and primarily, one of the ways that we do that is by showing hospitality. Inviting strangers in is what this word means. Bringing others into your house. Bringing others into your life, not just liking their posts on Facebook or doing the heart sign on Instagram or following them on anything else, but actually bringing them into your life. Brooke and I are 
right now at the peak of our hospitality potential. What I mean by that is there's a point in people's lives where their kids grow up, they're out of the house, so all the money that the parents now make is for the parents, like it's our time. You know, when I went to college, my parents finally went on a family vacation, and I wasn't invited. <laughs> because now they don't have to spend any money on me, they can just do it on themselves. So they finally have, so it's called the, the peak earning potential of couples' lives. Brooke and I are at the peak hospitality potential of our lives because we don't have kids. We have a living room that can seat more than two people. And we also like people, so we, we bring others in. I love having people over to our house like five times a week. Brooke likes one or two, and it makes it really awkward when people show up that third and fourth time. <laughs> but we love having people over, and it makes sense for us to have people over. We don't have anything to do. You know, you get home from work and you start watching Netflix at like 9 p.m., but what do you do in the meantime? You, you invite people into your lives. But what normally happens, so I see this in my own, my own job. So I'm over um, at Henderson, I'm over community groups, small groups, men's and women's ministries, and then singles. And so you kind of have this, this normal line of people's lives where they are single and then they get married, they have people over their house, then they have like a one-year-old and another one-year-old and they have play dates. And then you turn into the terrible twos and you definitely don't want anyone to ever come over to your house because it's always a mess. Nothing's ever clean. There's throw up everywhere. It's disgusting. I'm not doing the dishes anymore. And so you just kind of keep people at bay. And then they grow up a little bit larger. And then it's even smellier now uh, beside all that. And you're just stay away. People don't invite you over because your kids are insane and they're like, we do not have plastic over our carpet. And then you reach a point where your kids are gone and you kind of don't really know what to do with this big empty house. So my parents have four bedrooms in their house and two people live there and I'm pretty sure they share one room. I don't know what they do with the rest of the house. And so as Christians, we're supposed to live a lifestyle of inviting people in and inviting ourselves and other people. You know, my dad reached a, um, a crisis in his life when he turned 40 years old. So he became a Christian when he was about 23. Had no godly examples of his life when he became a Christian. So everything he's kind of learned is learned in the church. When he reached 40 years old, he had no idea how to be a 40-year-old Christian. Well, who should instruct my dad on how to be a 40-year-old Christian outside of the Spirit and the Word of God? Christians who are 41, right? Who's, who then should my dad turn to and instruct on being 30? You know, I'm 30 years old now. I'm going to ask my dad what it's like. You know, my body is starting to change. I'm getting more horizontal. I don't recover well. Aspirin is a normal thing beyond milk. How do I live on this side of heaven? We seek the fellowship of other Christians. So Christians... Invite yourself into other people's lives. They need you. One of the greatest things about church membership is just the open honesty of you looking at other people as a person and saying, I need you in my life. And, and honestly, it's also the other people saying, we want you in ours. Show hospitality to the ends of the earth. Matthew five sixteen says, let your sh light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It is a very unworldly thing to not invite people in, but it's a very Christian thing 
to not rely on yourself for everything. It's a very Christian thing to invite other people in, to display the gospel and its renewing effects day in and day out. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. One of the great things about church life is that every one of you, if you're in Christ, has a gift. And your gift is intentionally to serve the church. By that I mean to serve other people. Like God redeemed you for himself so that you can love other people. And that looks differently between us. You know, that might be uh, when my dad lost his job a couple years ago. I use my parents a lot in this. But when, I need to get new friends. When my dad lost his job a couple years ago, it was another Christian friend who was there immediately and reminded him, this is not God's judgment on your life. God's wrath was poured out on, on Jesus for you. Yes, there are hard times, but this isn't the wrath of God. My dad needed someone to speak truth into him. And thankfully, someone was gifted by the Spirit of God to speak the oracles of God. When my sister had a miscarriage a year and a half ago, someone just came over to her house and just cleaned it. You know, you don't think about taking out the trash three days after you lo lose a child. But there was someone there just serving. The gifts inside the church are displaying that love in a way that the world just doesn't, in a way the world just can't. So on this side of heaven, we are supposed to use our gifts. You are gifted. Use it. Don't squelch the glory of God. Use it towards other people. And then lastly, on your outline, it says rest. I do not know why I chose the word rest. Instead, I would like to choose the word relish. So on this side of heaven, we should relish in the glory of God, be consumed by the glory of God in our lives. It says in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter here is, is kind of separating the, the two major categories of giftings, the, the speaking ones. If you have a gift given by the Spirit that just kind of allows you to speak, you should speak the Bible to people. It is easy to speak worldly wisdom. Like Oprah doesn't always say crazy things. But more than anything, you are a Christian and you should use God's word. It's, it's a fascinating thing that people always just kind of sit around and wonder, what is God saying to me right now? Like, I just wish I could hear a word from the Lord. If you want to hear what God sounds like, open the Bible and read it aloud. That's exactly what God intended for you to hear. And then lastly, serve. Let him speak and show himself through the way you serve. And it doesn't always look like the way that the world sees service. Sometimes it looks very differently, but also very biblically. Serve so that at the end of the day, it's not your credit that's being heralded, but it's God's credit being heralded. So on this side of heaven, Christian, speak. Christian, serve. So that the glory of God might be seen, not yourself. This is something that I, I struggle with all the time. I, I want people to look at me. It's ultimately why I got rid of my Facebook, because I checked it all the time. Surely someone wrote me a message, or there's something awesome happening in my life. Like, my friends are cool, and they're doing this. Like, cut it out. Like, it's not about me. It's about the glory of the Lord being shown. Let him speak through us. Use your gifts. 
To him be long the glory and dominion forever and ever. And this is all, in all of this, it's kind of this post-Jesus' view of the resurrection. Our hope in the end is because of his work on the cross. And our hope in the end is because of his resurrection from the dead. And so our faith now, your active faith now, proves to be on the right side of history. So how do you live now given the circumstances that are given to you providentially by God? You should be inwardly focused. Grow the heart that Christ has redeemed. You should be outwardly focused. Love the people that God has put around you. You should want to spread this gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it, but they will see it through how you are speaking to them and loving them. And finally, you should just relish in the fact that God is going to be here with you, whether he brings you to himself or finally brings the new heavens and the earth with him. Keep the end in mind on this side of heaven. Keep heaven in mind at this point in your life. Life is real. Like, it, it now, it, it constantly is just hitting the fan. It's the, on this side of heaven, we should relish in the gospel that saves us, but also renews us and give us greater hope. Let's pray together. God, we really do thank you that you continually teach us and speak to us through your word. I, I ask that you will shape us and fashion us in, in the like-mindedness of this passage me as well as these brothers and sisters, that you will just remind us and give us opportunities to where we can see your rejoicing in the salvation of your son and where we can see opportunities to serve you and grow within the grace that you've given us. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Asher. Let's show our appreciation to Asher for being here. He'll also, we'll see you in a few weeks, I think. He'll be back in a couple weeks. And uh, so, I uh, remind you, a place to serve is Vacation Bible School. You can sign up in the lobby for that. Also, our pictorial directory um, at the Welcome Center. You can sign up to get your pictures taken for that. Um, I also would like to just encourage you to pray for our um, senior high youth who are on the way to Colorado right now for camp. So, remember them this week in your prayers. And as you go from here, let's relish in the gospel. Go in peace today.